Hello, friends. Welcome to a four-week online study through the Old Testament book of Ruth. For thousands of years, this story has held a treasured place in the Bible and has been an important source of history and theology in the Jewish and Christian communities, and I'm really excited to walk through it with you. It's a short book, only four chapters. You can read the whole story over a cup of coffee. In fact, take some time today to do that. You can hit pause and do it right now or do it sometime this week and just sit and read the story in full. Highlight things that stand out to you. Uh, This is very important when we're reading scripture. The writer of Ruth was brilliant in their narrative skills. So whatever speaks to you, whatever stands out to you was more than likely planned on their part. Now, here's how the podcast series will work. Each Friday, we'll release a new episode that delves into some of the history and theology and life implications of the chapter we're focusing on for that week. These podcasts are connected to our current sermon series through the book of Ruth, so listening in to those recordings will be helpful as well. I've also provided a study guide PDF for you to use if you'd like. You can download it from the Friday newsletter or from the podcast notes on our website. So with that, let's get started. Before we jump into the story itself, let's take a few minutes and do some background on this whole thing. Who wrote this story and when? What is its place in the biblical tradition? What was its intended purpose? These are all good questions that, let's start with authorship. The bad news here is we don't really know who wrote the story. Ancient Jewish tradition gives credit to Samuel as the writer, but there are also scholars who find the possibility of a female writer given the book's acute focus on the lives of two of its main characters who are women, Ruth and Naomi. But overall, as a letdown, scholars are unsure who wrote this story. This also makes it difficult to date the story, like when it was written. And again, scholarship is divided here. Proposals for almost every time period from the 10th to the 4th centuries BC have been offered up as considerations. There is some insight from the placement of Ruth in the Bible, however. In the Jewish ordering of the Bible, the book of Ruth appears in different places with different versions. In most versions, it appears in the section of the Jewish Bible known as the writings, or the ketuvim, as they say in Hebrew. And Ruth is situated in a section of the writings known as the five scrolls. These scrolls are the Song of Songs, then Ruth, followed by Lamentations, followed by Ecclesiastes, and then Esther. All of these books, by the way, have feminine titles and have females as their main characters. Now, each of the scrolls of these five scrolls, they're read at different times during the Jewish year, the liturgical year, if you will, kind of like the Christian year where we have all these feasts and festivals that we cycle through each and every season. Uh, The Jewish calendar is quite similar. And Ruth is read during the season of Shavuot or the festival of Shavuot. In Christian tradition, we call this Pentecost. It's the harvest festival that takes place 50 days after the Passover. And reading of uh, the story of Ruth during this festival has something to do with the harvest themes that we find in the story itself. Lots of farming, lots of things going on in the field. In another version of the Jewish Bible, 
Ruth appears right after Proverbs 31. That's that famous passage about a woman of noble character, and Ruth's story functions as a kind of exposition on such a woman. Now, in the Christian ordering of the Old Testament, Ruth is placed after the book of Judges, and it functions as a kind of alternative to the state of Israel's affairs that we find in the book of Judges. The last verse of Judges reads, quote, In those days there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own minds. You can back up and read that yourself. It's Judges 21, verses 25. All you have to do is read some of the stories in Judges to see that, was, uh, that what was, quote, right in their own eyes was often wrong in the eyes of God. It also implies a very self-centered approach to living in the world with no consideration or little consideration of the other. So when Ruth's story begins, it starts by saying in the very first verse, in the days when the judges ruled. This sets up the story within, within a context of extreme self-centeredness on Israel's part. But the story that follows is a kind of counter story to that as the love of neighbor and the behaviors of grace are brought to the very center through Ruth's story. So it's quite interesting information there. Why was this story written in the first place? This is another great question. There are lots of options here, but three rise to the top. Number one, there may have been some criticism of King David's mixed ancestry. And since Ruth's story ends with her becoming the great-grandmother of King David, and since Ruth was a Moabite, the story may have functioned as a way to mitigate some of that criticism. A second option here is that Ruth's story can be read as a story of inclusion and how the boundaries of Israel can be breached by other cultures and immigrants and sojourners and how they can become grafted into the Israelite community. We see this time and time again in the Old Testament. It's a good option. In the Christian tradition, this third option, Ruth's name appears in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. So her story becomes part of Jesus' story, and we are to take notice of that as well. All good stuff to consider as we enter this story. Okay, so let's get into the story proper for just a few minutes. There are several scenes here, and we'll take them each in turn. Scene one happens in the first five verses of chapter one. And a few things about this scene. From the very first verse of the first chapter, we are ushered into a hard situation. There's a famine in Bethlehem. Now, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's some difficult irony going on in the story here. And the writer then focuses on a single family responding to this famine, a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Killian. In Hebrew, those two names rhyme. They kind of rhyme in English too, now that I say them. But they immigrate to Moab, which is some 50 miles south of Bethlehem. No reason for this location is given, but it does raise the eyebrows of the reader because Israel and Moab have a troubled history 
filled with some tension over cultural and religious differences and even political as well. According to Genesis 19, the Moabites were descendants of the incestuous relationship with Abraham's uh, nephew Lot and his older daughter. So there was also this issue of that hanging in the air. But there was also this other issue of the Moabites worshiping a different god than Israel. And this added tension to the relationship between the two people. In Deuteronomy 23, the writer accuses Moab of not offering food or water to Israel as they fled slavery in Egypt and were therefore uh, prohibiting Moabites into the, quote, congregation of Israel. So definitely some back and forth here, some spite between these two people groups. And so in this opening scene, we're given the picture of a family leaving one hard situation and entering another hard and uncertain and difficult situation. Would they be accepted? Would they be able to make it? Would they be able to live? But the story gets worse very quickly. Very early in the narrative, we learn that Naomi's husband dies, and then her sons die as well. Now, no reason for the deaths is given, but it doesn't really matter, you know. The death of a loved one, no matter the cause, is still a death. It's still a loss, and the writer wants us to see and to feel this great absence of life. And so in this opening scene, we are brought into a very difficult time in Naomi's life. In the second scene, uh, we encounter three different speeches. Well, they're similar, but three speeches that Naomi makes, uh, and these cover, uh, they're covered in verses 6 through 15, if you want to follow along. So in this scene in the first chapter, we listen to these three speeches from Naomi to her daughters-in-law, both Ruth and Orpah. And again, you find this in verses 6 through 15. They're short speeches, but they're all quite similar. Naomi is simply trying to convince her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab and rebuild their lives with new husbands and children. Now, a sidebar here. We are deep in a patriarchal society here, and sadly, the value of women was closely tied to their marriage and childbearing status. Marriage was often a means of survival as well as a fuller life of safety, security, and worth. This was the reality of the time. It was one thing to have never married or mothered a child. It was another to be stripped of those things and made a motherless widow. And while this reality doesn't sit well with us in our present day, understanding of men's and women's roles in society and in relationships, it was the reality then, and it's important for us to see and feel that in the story as it unfolds. Phyllis Tribble says of Naomi's situation here, quote, she is a stranger in a strange land, and this woman is a victim of death and of life. She's really stuck. And so this is a tragic situation. But Naomi wants to return to Bethlehem. You can see this in chapter 1. And most certainly she wants to return there in hopes of finding family to live with and to return to some sense of normalcy. But here's the catch. You notice that her two daughters-in-law are trying to hitch a ride with her. 
And what we read in this scene of chapter one are these three short speeches, and they're mostly pleas from Naomi, aimed at encouraging her daughters to remain in Moab and just to start their lives over there. Now, the first speech takes place in verses six through 10, and it's spoken to both Ruth and her sister. They're not swayed. Naomi tries to convince them to stay, but they're not swayed. They vow to stay with Naomi. So she makes a second speech. You find this in verses 11 through 14. And in this speech, Orpah, she changes her mind and she returns home. She's like, cool, I'll go back. You make a good point, Naomi. But we're also left with this scene in verse 14 where the writer says that Ruth didn't leave. She clung to Naomi, the writer says. So there's a, there's a third speech that's given right here, and it's just one verse, and this one is just to Ruth. And in this speech, Naomi is ineffective. Uh, Ruth remains in place, and she is now a fixture in this story. This is the turning point in the first chapter. Now, it's important to note here that Naomi is also uh, mourning great loss, but so are, are her daughters-in-law. They, too, are suffering uh, from their own losses. They, too, are motherless widows, and they are companions in Naomi's pain. So there's a shared sense of camaraderie here. But Naomi's urging them to stay behind is more than likely her wish to remove the additional anxiety from her life. She isn't all that interested in the extra weight on her journey back home. You can really pick this up in the language. It seems as though she's trying to truly escape So theologically and narratively, the story begins with a natural famine in Naomi's homeland, and now she is suffering a famine of loss in her family and in her relationships. There's a real emptiness with which the story begins, and the writer, again, wants us to see that and to feel that. takes us into this um, really important piece of chapter one. Ruth makes these vows to Naomi. This moves us into the heart of the chapter. Ruth's promises to Naomi. Let's read that together. You can follow along. It's verses 16 through 18. But Ruth said to Naomi, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. That's Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Now, the questions we have here at this point in the story are, why does Ruth say these things to Naomi? What is her goal here? Why such a commitment? Well, the writer gives no indication as to why Ruth makes these vows to Naomi. So the reader is left to figure it out based on the words themselves. And there are several features in what Ruth says that are worth noting. Number one is this feature of covenant language. Ruth is using the language of a covenant, a contractual move to detach from her former life and reattach herself to a new life under a new form in a new system. 
She's moving herself from her world to another world. She is making a promise, a treaty of sorts, to become part of Naomi's life and Naomi's people. This is covenantal language. A second feature is cultural abandonment. Ruth is also promising to attach herself to a new people, a new way of life, and a new community. There's a willingness here for her to integrate into a community that's different from hers, this community of Israel, and to live as one of them. There's a real sense of cultural abandonment here. She's turning her back on her life. A third feature, a very important feature here, is the feature of relational fidelity. Ruth commits to the long term here, you can see it in the language, to remain with Naomi and her people and Ruth's new people until death. I mean, this is a whole deal. This is a complete and total relocation for Ruth. She's leaving behind her homeland, her people, her culture, her faith, her beliefs. I mean, we we have to catch that. And certainly a more stable future, at least on paper. So Ruth stands in the story as a kind of God figure, a presence in the midst of great absence. She is an orienting voice in a disorienting time for Naomi. What's interesting here is how Naomi responds. She does concede, but she's not comforted by Ruth's words. Verse 18 shows the tension here. Look at that with me. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. There's no more dialogue between Naomi and Ruth in this chapter. This is the end of that conversation. The story shows Naomi giving in to the stubbornness of Ruth, but the language does not imply joy or relief, but mostly more frustration, more stress, perhaps more anxiety. And as as moving as Ruth's words are, they also fall flat with Naomi. They're not really enough to cause Naomi to, uh, um, to jump with like joy and jubilation. They're enough to cause Naomi to give in and to let Ruth go with her. But she's not really comforted by them. And we have to notice that as we read the story. You can see this at the end of the chapter. If you look at verses 19 through 21, notice what is said here. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara. This is the word in Hebrew for bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It doesn't really sound like Naomi is feeling any better. There's still a great deal of healing to take place. And so this story unfolds with tension. It begins with this loss of stability in Bethlehem, the promise of stability in Moab, even though it's a a foreign land and possibly um, hostile environment for this family. And then when they're there, it's met with more tragedy, death and loss, a motherless widow. There's still a great deal of healing uh, 
that has to take place. But then we get this little boost of Ruth's words of commitment to Naomi. I'll be with you. I'll go with you all the way to the end. But it doesn't seem to comfort her. We have to notice this. about the conclusion of the chapter for just a moment. This is in verse 22. As we come to the end of the chapter, verse 22 essentially summarizes their journey back to Jerusalem, but it also provides some insight for what is to come. Notice how Ruth is designated in verse 22 as Ruth the Moabite. This is the first of six instances of Ruth being labeled as the Moabite in the story, and we can't miss that. It's a very important feature We're getting shades of integration here, of outsiders becoming insiders within a community uh, of Israel. One of the possible and powerful meanings of this story is about inclusion, about widening the boundaries, about Israel welcoming in the stranger. Another feature in this final verse of the chapter is how the writer points out Uh, that they return to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You can see this at the very end of the verse. Remember that Naomi left Bethlehem during a famine, and she returns at a time when there is food again. There's sustenance, there's safety, there's security here. And so we have this leaving in a time of famine, but returning in a time of replenishing. So we get some shades of what might be on the horizon for us in the story. Now, the story of Ruth is genuinely mostly the story of Naomi and her journey from emptiness to fullness, from famine to feast. But alongside her story is this story of Ruth's presence in her life. And Ruth will play an integral role in this story. Uh, I don't want to be misunderstood there. She is a major player in this. And she stands there as the presence of grace and commitment and neighborly love. And though Ruth's words fall flat with Naomi, these vows that she makes, though they kind of just land flat, they have been spoken. And they now hang there on the walls of this story. And they have set the tone for what is to come. And they are unavoidable in the flow of this narrative. And her words function as a way forward through a time of loss and tragedy. And in this way, we can see the architecture of God's grace and provision In such times, Ruth stands in the story as a template for the incarnation of God's presence in times of great need. Naomi doesn't see that in the moment. And so chapter one closes with more tension. How will this play out? What will happen next? So we'll talk about that next week as we get into chapter two. But again, take some time this week, today even, and just read the whole story Write down things that stand out to you. Highlight things that jump off the page uh, for you. And let's see if we can explore these things together and learn some new things about this story and about God's grace and presence in our lives through such difficult times. Grace and peace. I hope this has been beneficial for you, and I will be back again next week.